Welcome back to In-Depth Commercial Real Estate. This show is an open discussion of the people, ideas, and methods behind commercial real estate. I'm your host, Paul Eaton. Our guest today is Matt Lariva. Matt is the Director of Research and Analytics at FCP, where he leverages data science and quantitative methods to enhance asset selection, management, and disposition. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So what brought you down or into the path of finding yourself in real estate? Yeah, real estate is sort of the the place for unwanted toys in the finance space. Sometimes we think of it. So I, on the other hand, had always really wanted to be in real estate because I grew up in Southern California and you're just inundated with the grandeur of this asset class. And you see an entire economy that's been based around property and property growth and appreciation because of this location that it's got, the California Riviera, essentially. So I had always wanted to be in real estate. And I went to the Wharton School to further that goal. And then I had the auspicious misfortune of graduating into what I would call the worst period of history in the history of humanity, which is the 2009 economic collapse that was led by, of course, the commercial real estate sector. So I had to put that uh, goal on hold for a minute and um, bide my time until the market came back. But when it did, I was fortunate enough to find Green Street Advisors. And for those of you who aren't familiar, they do sell-side REIT research and they cover most of North America's REITs and most of the big sectors. And they've got such a stellar team of analysts there who are doing really cutting edge work in trying to just bring light to a space that hasn't been well illuminated. So I joined Green Street Advisors in their quantitative analytics group and found a home there basically. And I stayed there for six years, learned as much as I could about real estate from Mike Kirby and Cedric Lachance. And then I, uh, I started seeing a trend that more and more of these analyses that I was basing opinions off of and that I was really fascinated by were being done in a very quantitative, data-heavy space. And so after I completed my CFA while at Green Street, I made the decision to also get a master's in applied statistics at UCLA. So I completed that while working. And then the trend that I had seen that got me excited about that in the first place was actually proliferating further. And more and more commercial real estate was leaning into alternative data, new sets of data, new ways to think about trying to map out our asset class. And so I wanted to see what the view was like from the buy side, where I could potentially use those data sets with a little bit more frequency. So a firm reached out to me and they're called FCP. And they said that they knew they had a blind spot for data and analytics, and they wanted to get ahead of the competition and stay there. And they brought me on board and it's been a fantastic relationship. And we've done some really innovative work over the last uh, two and a half years. A lot of stuff that's been picked up by media, but an equivalent amount that we don't share for proprietary reasons, but just fascinating insights that we're able to draw around commercial real estate and forecasting because real estate's at this cool intersection between long duration, heavy momentum trends and a burgeoning data availability. So that's where I am currently, and that's a sort of long answer to how I got into real estate, but um, it's been a good journey. You've worked with a lot of alternative sources of data. How do you think that affects the liquidity in real estate? Yeah, that's right. 
And I think that's a great question. And I think we have to sort of take a step back when we think about that. So real estate is illiquid, that's for sure. But real estate is also inefficient. And generally, you think about inefficient markets and they have a few characteristics as requisites. You have to have difficult price discovery. You have to have asymmetric information and you have to have uh, low volume or slow transactions. And that's exactly what real estate is. If you look at any building on a building by building basis. And so unfortunately, that puts it in a class of things like fine art, rare automobiles, but it doesn't need to be in that space. Every one of those aspects that's making it inefficient has a solution. But unfortunately, there are a lot of people who make money uh, off of uh, their intermediation and off of these solutions that used to address what was a necessary problem space, right? This this inefficient market. But for example, you've got the title issue, right? And that's one reason why real estate is inefficient. But we essentially have a solution to that or very close to one because we've got a blockchain system that's growing up. And you've also just have basically zero instances of people making title claims from like a hundred years back, which is what the title process does for you in the first place is protects you against that. So we've got a solution there. Then you've got the price discovery issue, right? We used to have to have appraisers and real estate agents come out and tell us exactly what it was worth. But now we know that appraisers have appraisal bias, which is not their fault. It's just that you can't really know when a peak has come until after you're past it. And so you're going to be biased in the appraisal space. But we've got so many sources of data now that we don't really have to have appraisers or that uh, inefficient, difficult price reveal. And then finally, you've got uh, the slow or rather you've got the asymmetric information problem, which is, well, what if I'm going to buy a house that's completely dilapidated or it's hiding some massive fault that's going to cost me all this money? But we've got inspectors who can really figure that out in an afternoon. So real estate really no longer has a reason to be an alternative asset. It it should be a traditional blue chip asset. And there is uh, nothing that's creating these inefficient markets that can't be solved. Now, you brought up the question of, How is data contributing to that or making it more efficient or more liquid? And data is at the heart of all of that. It's helping us decrease the information asymmetries because if I'm going to buy something in South Florida, I want to know if it's going to get washed away in 10 years. Well, luckily, I have uh, NOAA data, for example, showing me what climate patterns are doing. I've got insurance data if I want to buy it to find out how many claims there have been because of fluvial incidences. So it's helping us in terms of the information asymmetry. It's really helping us in terms of price discovery. And then it's helping us in ways that we didn't even think about, like forecasting. So I think data is really going to be instrumental in helping real estate graduate to the asset class it should be in. You have some interesting insights about migration. What alternative data sources did you use for those insights? How did you use the data and what were your findings? Yeah, migration was a really hot topic and we got so much press about some of the work we've done and I'm grateful for that, but it was relatively easy compared to some of the other stuff. To answer your question, the data I used was influenced by the question I ended up asking. And in all things, I try and take complex questions and make them simple. And so the complex question was, how are migration patterns going to change because of the pandemic? And that's what everybody wanted to know. But that's unanswerable. 
And anyone who tells you otherwise is sort of deluding themselves. We don't know and we won't know. So let's convert that to a simpler question. Where are people going right now? And then we don't have to extrapolate the trend. We can just say, here's the best data we have. Here's where people have gone. You can extrapolate it if it makes sense to you. I can tell you what we're going to do about it as investors, but that's a simpler question and an easier one to answer. So now we've framed it into a better space. Where are people going? And you had a number of players trying to address this. You had people looking at U-Haul data, United Van Lines data, Zillow data, Redfin purchase data. The problem is those are all really biased subsections of the population. You think about who's renting U-Haul vans, and that's a very distinct population set. Think about who's purchasing things on Zillow, and that's a really small subset. But what occurred to me was that we could use this company that we had worked with for some proprietary things, and we could use them to see if we could get cell phone pings. So the company's called Orbital Insight, and they've been a great partner of ours for a while. What they do is generally low Earth orbit satellites for photography, for things like how many cars are in a mall parking lot to figure out what traffic is going to be and therefore what earnings are going to be of some of these mall REITs. But they also do exotic things like what's the reservoir height and then therefore what's the crop yield going to be. But what we use them for was where have people gone? Because everybody has a cell phone. So we got millions of pings, totally anonymized. I have no idea who these people are. I have no idea what apps they use, ages, anything like that. But I had cell phone pings. And so I saw what was happening and we saw exactly where people were coming from and where they were going. And there were sort of two trends emerging. One was that the swarm to warm or the migration to the sun belt was continuing. And there's many reasons for that. But some of them are, we know that there's been exoduses from the coastal, especially the West Coast markets. And people are going to Texas, they're going to Arizona, they're going to Nevada, or they're going down to Florida from the Northeast. Those trends were all continuing. But we also saw some interesting trends about the pandemic. And you could kind of trace it in terms of a bunch of people from the Pacific Northwest going down to Arizona. You saw a bunch of people from the Northeast going down to Florida, and those became the subsequent hotspots of the pandemic. So there were two interesting trends there, but that's the data we used and the conclusion that we drew from it. What is the most predictive metric that causes a metro area to receive inbound migration? Like why is Phoenix or Houston receiving so many people moving into the area, as opposed to other Little Rock, Arkansas, yeah. would be one that you don't see that. Yeah. If you ask 100 people and 100 demographers, you probably get 200 different answers. So what I try and do in these sort of questions is stay away from anecdotes and lean into the research. And so the best research we have on this topic shows that the mean January temperature is the most indicative metric of growth. So people are moving to hotter areas ever since the call it 1950s when you had the advent of air conditioning. So that's my short answer to that question. Let's move forward 15 or 20 years and we have global climate change occurring or it's occurring. Do you think that there could be a ceiling? You know, in other words, the mean high in August, if it's too high, that that would begin to restrict migration. For example, in Phoenix or in Tucson or in Houston. Yeah, of course. If temperatures get too high, you either have to make 
the decision that you're not going to invest in that city anymore. And I mean that in like a human capital way, you're not going to go there or you have to take a very energy inefficient approach to it and do what some cities have done and basically just make sort of pedestrian enclosed walkways. So some of the Texas markets have done that. You, you don't have to leave or basically <laughs> touch fresh air for a long time. You go straight from your car into an office. You want to get lunch from your office. You walk through a covered air-conditioned pedestrian airway or walkway into a food court, back, back home, home is air-conditioned, etc. So I don't think we're going to go that route. So then you're left with the fact that, okay, people probably won't want to live in these places if its average temperature is 120 degrees every day. So then, sure, there's a ceiling on some of these areas. But I think there could also be some other perhaps unforeseen trends, like you're not going to want to live in areas that are subject to extreme storms. And we think of that in terms of flooding or tides. But it could also be a increased risk of wildfires. And you could see that in places that have a lot of dense forests, or it could be an increase in tornadoes, and you see it through the Midwest. So we oftentimes lean into the either heat or sea phenomena from climate change. And I think there's actually many unknown and largely unknowable patterns that we're not going to get a good glimpse into until they either happen or we get quantum computing broadly accepted so you can model weather trends or birthday. Tyler Cowen wrote a book, I don't know, two or three years ago. I believe the title has the word complacency. And that was the main theme of the book in that Americans are more complacent from past and current Americans are, are more complacent than previous generations. And one of the takeaways was that people were migrating less. How does that square with the data you are finding? It's a great question. And it's from a very knowledgeable source. And his blog, Marginal Revolution, is always an illuminating one for those who haven't seen it. But to your question, He's right. People aren't migrating as much, but it's a little bit partial. So we as Americans tend to migrate more than just about any other country in the world. We're always in the top 10 of migrations. We move very frequently. So you're looking at something like once every eight years, which relative to other nations is just off the charts. So we're coming from a really high place. But yes, over the last uh, two decades, migration trends in the U.S. have become less volatile and they've started to flatline a little bit. I don't know if that's complacency as much as it is just Markov mechanics. And what I mean by that is population migration follows Markov chain patterns, meaning like once you're in L.A., you've got a, say, 30 percent chance of leaving and a 70 percent chance of staying. And what we know about Markov chain mechanics is that eventually you get to a steady state. You don't keep just whipsawing around. Eventually, you know, 30% of the country is going to be in LA, 70% will be elsewhere. And those mechanics just sort of find a steady state. I think we might have gotten closer to that as we made basically all parts of the country livable. So you'll probably see migration trends stay steady for a while. But then again, then we had COVID and we got an entire class of employees who now know what it's like to work remotely and work with a lot of freedom. So 
you've got on the other end of that argument, the sort of um, freelance movement where if we all become freelancers, then we can live wherever we want. And maybe we see even more migration. Maybe some of these cities and states that haven't traditionally had a lot of inflow, North Midwest states, start to have it. As we see all these inbound migration trends coming into the South in the U.S., and people are generally settling in the suburbs, what do you see with the growth of autonomous driving? How is that going to affect real estate? It's quite a bit of conjecture here, but yeah. I think it's quite interesting. I've got like two thoughts on this. The, fr- the first one is that no matter what anyone says, they're going to be wrong about this. So <laughs> I want to tread lightly and, and not pound the table too hard on this. But there's like one aspect of it that I see is under studied. Now, Green Street has done some work on this and they say that maybe every car will just go park out in the exurbs during the day and then it'll come back in at night to pick you up from work. And so what does that do for parking lots? It means they're all going to be developed, et cetera, et cetera. The first floors of malls and offices and urban settings are going to be built out. They don't have to be parking lots anymore. Maybe Uh, that seems a little bit outlandish, but maybe what I think is going to be the case is that you're going to see a surge in data real estate, meaning the real estate that houses data centers, which is its own class of REITs that sort of falls under infrastructure sometimes. But think about data centers and think about towers, uh, cell towers specifically. Both of those are real estate and REIT segments. Imagine how much compute is going to be necessary to coordinate these autonomous vehicles. And by coordinate, I mean, if I'm gonna take a trip, it isn't helpful if I can just get in my car and it drives me to the grocery store. That's sort of where we are right now. That's not, it's cool, it's interesting, but it's not super helpful. What's sort of the end goal is that I say, I wanna go to the grocery store and my car says, wait four minutes and 30 seconds, because then there's gonna be a dip in traffic of people going to your exact location will merge you on with between these two cars that are going to approach at this speed rate. And then you will never have to go less than 65 miles an hour and you will travel within one foot of the cars in front and behind you. That's where we want to get to. That's the holy grail of it, which is doable, but requires a massive amount of compute because it's basically a combinatorics nightmare. So you need a lot of computing power to be able to host that. And that takes place in data centers where servers are located. And that takes up space and it takes up interesting space because they need to be cooled all the time. And so you start thinking about, well, does North Dakota become just a haven for servers because the energy costs are less because it's actually physically colder there and we can maybe insulate the rooms less? And that's one area that I think is really cool. Also, the cell towers, obviously, for the same reasons. You need all that connectivity and you need them to be in perfect connectivity all the time. So you need a lot of towers to do that. So that's my sort of take on where autonomous vehicles go and how they impact real estate. Demographic trends generally have enormous inertia. What are some of the possible reasons why they could abruptly shift or shift over a decade yeah. Which normally they don't do that. It, it, these are long running sure. secular trends. And what are some of the reasons they would, we'd have an abrupt shift? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. And I would say, I really can't think of any reasons that you'd have an abrupt shift. We haven't really ever seen that in 
big, well-established cities. Now we of course have dying cities, but it doesn't happen abruptly. You think of Detroit, you think of um, Cleveland and these industries that were really heavily reliant on some specific industry and that industry slowly moved out and then the cities kind of founder for a little bit. That's the pace at which we see these trends happen. So what does it look like when one of those incidences occur? Well, historically, it's been things like you create an air conditioner so people can live in places that would generally be too uncomfortable. You, and the other one that people don't talk about that much is you produce civil rights legislation, which makes the South livable for a group of people who previously did not want to be there. So looking at either massive technological leaps that allow you to be somewhere where you wanted to be but couldn't, or you're thinking about massive legislative changes that allow something to occur that didn't used to occur. So maybe if all U.S. employees can now work abroad and avoid paying any taxes, maybe you'll see something happen uh, if a trend like that takes place. But then, of course, maybe the pandemic does something odd, and I certainly hope not, but if it becomes such that I really want to live my day without encountering anyone besides my pod, then my living environment and probably my geography is going to look wildly different than it does now. What are your current research interests? Mm. What I'm really interested in and have been for a while is inflation. I think we've got some really good research out there about what's likely to happen in the inflationary environment. And then we've got a lot of chatter that is completely anecdotal. And I'm really interested to know how the interest rates affect real estate. And I've got some new research coming out that proposes a new way to capture cap rate expansion based on that. And it looks pretty promising. So I'm looking into that. And then along the lines of uh, what we did with the migration trend, we're answering the question of which cities are going to be hit the hardest and the lightest by the work from anywhere or work remote trend. And uh, we're going to show that research in a couple months, but similar vein. You have a basically impossible question that we framed differently and found some really compelling evidence. Do you have a book or an article over the last year that you would recommend? <sighs> I've got many. So I'll sort of cater it to the people who are likely listening to this. I somehow did not manage to read Code Complete when I went through school. So I read that and it's a tome. It's a daunting task to get through that book. It's like a thousand X pages of really dense code and pseudocode and best practices for coding. But like, I would give that the same pretext that they gave the Mahabharata, which is if you read this book completely and get to the end of it, you'll be a different person. And so that was a great one if you're into coding. If you want something light, there's a book by David Rakoff that my sister gave to me called um, Love, Dishonor, Mary, Die, Cherish, Perish, which I think is just like a fascinating piece of literature. It's a novel in verse, which hasn't really been done since, I don't like Pushkin or done well. So uh, yeah, you could probably you could probably juggle between those two and have a pretty good time. Well, Matt, thank you so much for the interview and your thoughts. We will link to your information and also the two books you just mentioned in the show notes. And uh, thanks again. Great. Thanks so much, Paul. You can find Matt's contact information on the FCP website at fcpdc.com. And we'll have that link in the show notes. We'll also have a link to the books Matt recommended. Thank you for listening to this episode of In-Depth Commercial Real Estate. You can reach us at 
info at in-depthrealestate.com.